first of all, I'll say that if there's any concerns from our robust listenership about this being the B team, you guys should know that Smitha is the A team. So I think we're in good hands. Flattering, um, but untrue. <laughs> it's all a matter of opinion. Hey everyone, welcome to On Marketing, Starcom's podcast on marketing and media. You've probably noticed a different voice introing you today. I'm Smitha Nagarajda, and I'm inch-hitting or hostily taking over, depends on your perspective, for Robert Schwartz today. But I promise, 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 you don't have the B team today because I am excited to have Steve Bonner, our EVP and Head of Cultural Intelligence at Starcom, on with me today. You might recognize his voice from our CES episode. And I'm equally jazzed to pick the brain of our other guest, Megan O'Keefe, EVP and Head of Platform Investment at Starcom. So welcome, Megan, and welcome back, Steve. And if Megan's title didn't telegraph this already, we're here to talk about platforms, specifically how they live and how they die, and what our role is as marketers in that process. So, Steve, I'm going to kick it off with you first for a little bit of an intro on what got us inspired to talk about this today in the first place. This topic, the, the question of how platforms emerge, grow, thrive, and then wither away and die, is something that's near and dear to my heart because it's something that I've sort of been observing and thinking about really since the beginning of the internet. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But it kind of uh, came to a, a head when I saw it started out as a, a Twitter thread and then it turned into an essay that was published um, in Wired in late January of this year by a guy named Corey Doctro. And for people who don't know Corey Doctro, he a hugely interesting follow on um Twitter or whatever social media platform you might personally love yourself. And he's sort of a, a critic on all things tech. He's a critic on all things, the business of culture. And he's written a really interesting book called Choke Point Capitalism that I highly recommend to anyone listening to this. And basically the thread and the essay talked about how media platforms, typically social media platforms. So think about your metas in your Instagrams, your Facebooks, your Googles, your YouTubes. What is their life cycle? How do they attract a user base? Then how do they monetize that user base? And then how do they often almost inevitably fall into disrepair and become a place that nobody wants to be and abandon and move on to the next thing? And I really started thinking about that and I reached out to Megan because I wanted to talk to her about that because she knows far more about platforms than I ever will. And that's really how we got here. We're going to start off deceptively simple. So Megan, can you just give us a quick idea of what the platform life cycle even is? Yeah, I feel like it's what kind of Steve was starting to talk about there. So, you know, at its basic level, you know, the first thing is they have to get users. So it's grow the user base. Then if they don't sell, it's about how do you monetize? How do you make this an actual business model? So to do that, you know, one way could be a subscription model, but most likely is what we've seen is that they turn to advertising. And so it's all about wooing the brands and bringing the advertisers on the platform to start to bring in the revenue. And once they have the brands there and the users there, then it really becomes about their business. And oftentimes they get trapped in that drive for profitability. And how do you kind of eke out more and more value from the brands and the users that you have on your platform? And that's where that delicate balance comes in. And if they don't kind of get that right and continue to develop for the user and make it a great environment, that's where you can tend to see that platforms may not last. So does this differ depending on the type of platform? So Steve mentioned a bunch of different, largely social media centric platforms, but you know this could hold for an Amazon or you know any sort of 
online-based system? Um, and do we think that there's differences or nuances depending on the type of, of tech platform we're talking about? I think that the best entrepreneurs in history were first introduced to us on South Park and they were the underpants gnomes. And the underpants gnomes had a very compelling business model, which was to steal underpants and then question mark and then profit. <laughs> and that is exactly the history of the business models of the internet. And so what platforms do, whether it's Amazon or whether it's Facebook or whether it's Twitter and whether those platforms even know what they're going to grow up to be, like they don't. So when they start, but they, they speculate that the most valuable thing you can have is an audience because the people in the world with the most money to spend on things that they don't understand are advertisers. And so advertisers will spend money if you tell them there's an audience that they can advertise to and that you can segment that audience and that you can direct ads to them specifically based on their interests and their things that they've shown, you know, an affinity for. And so the whole trick to unlocking that business first is you got to give people stuff for free. You got to create something, an experience that feels too good to be true. And you let that persist for a period of time that seems like, oh, this might be the way it's going to be forever. And then the advertisers start to show up and that's when things start to go south. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think it's probably pretty similar in terms of the overall arc. Certainly a commerce platform has a bit of dynamic around the relationships with brands and the advertisers since they are likely both a product being sold as well as paying that advertiser revenue stream. So a little bit of dynamics that you wouldn't see in like a social platform. And I'd say too, like, even if you think about Amazon, which did not start out really as like, oh, we're going to attract an audience and then show them ads. That is kind of what they ended up doing. They said, we're going to attract an audience by, by basically subsidizing the price of the things you buy on Amazon and then doubling down and subsidizing the price you pay for shipping. And so now you have to shop on Amazon at the beginning. It's like, I can get everything there because Amazon exerted their influence and basically bullied sellers into saying, if you're not selling on Amazon, people aren't going to find it. They're not going to find it. So you have to come to Amazon to buy it. And then we're going to make it so attractive for users to buy on Amazon because we're basically going to give them subsidized shipping. And then once we train people into these behaviors and we make it really hard to get off the platform, now we're going to make the experience worse because we have to, to make a profit. So we've talked about this largely in terms of the internet, but I think there's a hardware analogy to make too. Um, if you think about, say, the Apple ecosystem, where once you're locked in, you're you're locked in. You can't get Amazon Fire if you are in the iOS system because it's not going to talk to anything else. So in what ways do we see that locking in or that holding hostage of a consumer, if you will, in other areas that's parallel to this? I mean, I think you've certainly seen Meta try to take that approach. If you look at their evolution, right, starting with those social connections, that social community, building in chat, getting the publishers on board, trying to become that source of news and content, trying to then add in commerce and marketplace, you know, really trying to do feature development that makes them the one-stop shop for consumer attention. But what I think is interesting about the social platforms versus, you know, like an Apple or a hardware company you know, they're not trying to kind of get them to buy the next device. It really is a battle for consumer attention, which is almost a harder game because consumer attention is so fickle. You know, it can change day by day, hour by hour. And so they have to continue to innovate, make an engaging product, make it a place consumers want to spend their time. Yeah, I think you definitely see it in, in hardware. I think, you know, Meta is 
speculatively trying to convince people that the metaverse is a thing that people will, you know, we'll all decide we want to be legless cartoons. And that's where we'll spend our time. And in order to do that, we'll need to have a helmet that we'll buy from Meta. And we'll probably have to get software updates and refresh the hardware. So there's all kinds of like really interesting ways that you lock people in to a behavior if you can make the behavior too good to be true enough. Yeah, planned obsolescence being a great mechanism for that. So we talk about attracting a consumer and keeping a consumer. How do we know when a platform is going to be a clubhouse versus a TikTok, something that is a passing fancy that gets a lot of buzz in the press and has initial surge in enrollment, but it dies off pretty quickly versus something that is able to retain an attention. And I think about, you know, Megan, you talking about that is the commodity attention, not necessarily buying a device. That's easier said than done is is providing value to the consumer for long enough that they stay dedicated and, and get ensnared, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I think it's hard to predict what's going to catch fire. The data analytics nerd side of me is like, well, we look at the daily average users and the monthly average users, and we look for consistent growth. You know, we want to see that they're bringing in new users over time, that they're expanding beyond potentially that niche audience that launched with them at the beginning, that they're able to attract a broader and broader user base by designing a consumer experience that fulfills a user's need. So I feel like those are some of the things that we look at to guess, if you will, if a platform is going to have longevity or not. You know, the historical truth is that how do we know if a platform is going to be sort of a flash in the pan or if it's going to last forever? And the truth is they're all, like, there's nothing that has, like, not declined as time went by. The question is just, like, how long can you survive? Can you keep going? And I think Google's an interesting example of this. So Google, for all the things that they that they, they do and all the places that they play in, really Google exists because their search product has become sort of like the generally accepted, this is how we search for things online. It's a really good search product. It's not as good as it used to be, but it's a really, really good search product. People know how to use it. They know what to expect from it and all of that stuff. But if you think about some of the other things that Google has brought to market, like Gmail, you already see this is happening. Gmail is turning into an absolute wasteland of crap because, you know, Gmail was given away for free. We all got our Gmail accounts. We didn't have to pay for them. Unlimited use, unlimited amount of stuff you could keep in your inbox or you could keep in your archive or whatever, whatever, whatever. An unlimited number of, you know, files you could send. And now I'm sure I'm not the only person who gets a notification almost every day from Gmail that says, you're almost out of space. You have to buy more storage. You got to buy more storage. So they've hooked me in. I can't get rid of Gmail. I'm never going to get rid of Gmail. But now they're having to resort to these like things that I don't want to do because the stuff that they sold me, the too good to be true stuff has run out. So now they're at this point where some of their products are starting to nosedive into like an annoyance because I don't want to pay for more storage on Google. But at some point I probably will because I now have like this email account that sends me ads all day long every single day in the form of newsletters, targeted emails, whatever they are. And that eats up all of my bandwidth. That eats up all of the space I have. So now I have to go back to Google and pay them for the privilege of having more ads in my inbox. So it's it's not a question of like, are platforms going to like nosedive? It's just a question of like, when is that inflection point that tells you they're about to? Two things. One, what you say reminds me a lot of uh, Southwest Airlines where... They hedged on fuel very early on and then were the 
cheapest provider for years and then now are significantly more expensive slash did not invest in their tech infrastructure and are now expensive for a whole host of reasons, not all financial. Um, but the second thing is, you know, you mentioned Google search product not being as good as it used to be, but still being vital to how people search and probably the best option out there. We're already seeing even that flag for people, especially Gen Z, many of whom are turning to other social platforms like Instagram to be able to search. And that feels more natural to how their brains are wired. That leads me to a question to you guys where is part of the longevity then being adaptive to the ways in which newer generations and newer people are hardwired to think? So in a lot of ways, Gen Z being truly digital native has changed how they even think about technology and approach technology, which requires different things out of the user experience. And Instagram is a good example of a platform that has modified itself well. It's kind of killed off Snapchat by taking what was useful from Snapchat for them. It's now doing the same to Google. Do we think that's a big part of the question? And if so, like how can how can brands really achieve that successfully the way Instagram perhaps has versus other platforms? The way you can sort of stave off running into irrelevance is you have to understand how users are going to hack your platform because every platform will be hacked in some way, informally or formally by, by your users. And we used to talk about this concept at Starcom of desire lines, which is basically like, if you don't create a path for someone to get where they want to go, they'll create a path for themselves. And so I think that the issue with the way young people, especially the way young people search is that they know where they want to land. They have a good sense in their own minds when they're searching for something of where they want to land. It's very rare that you're sort of freeform searching and you're like, I don't care, drop me anywhere. I think you're like, I want to land on, if I'm searching about the health benefits of asparagus, I probably want to hear from like an influencer or somebody that I trust or somebody that I already believe what they say. What do they think about asparagus? So like, where are you going to drop me? Where are you going to land me? And that is how young people especially, but I think people of all ages hack platforms to get where they think that they want to go. And I think that if you're a platform, the best thing you can do is understand how your users are hacking your platform and then help them do it or help them not have to do it. So you're getting them exactly what they think they want. Yeah. I mean, I agree that it it's really comes down to being all about the user and making sure that you continue to provide that valuable user experience. I mean, I think it's interesting you brought up Snap. You know, I was just meeting with them this week and we talked about how, you know, there's such a kind of a, a chat feature, if you will, for Gen Z, which is, you know, people are thinking, oh, TikTok's going to wipe out Snap, is no longer going to be relevant. Well, actually, they've had consistent growth. And it's because they serve that unique kind of function or feature, if you will, for their users. And then they lean into that in terms of the innovation that they've done on the platform to kind of further foster that behavior that consumers said, no, this is how I see you. This is how I want to use you. And they developed around that to kind of continue to feed into a positive user experience. So I think it is kind of, you know, keeping that eye on the user and making sure you're building for them and not kind of going all the way to the other side of purely building for your own business as a platform. I think that's a huge, huge point you just made, Megan, like the narratives that surround platforms, right? So it's, it's easy to go, Snap is dead because TikTok is killing it or Instagram is going to die because TikTok is going to kill it. When the truth of the matter is that those platforms still have their role. They still have mm -hmm. audiences. You know, people are like, Elon Musk is back and it's killing Twitter. It's like, 
Well, it's it's changing Twitter. I don't know that it's killing Twitter. There are still people active on Twitter. There are still communities on Twitter. But what happens very, very frequently and commonly and on purpose around these platforms is we have narratives. And so mm-hmm. like if you walk into a meeting with a client who wants to target young people and you say Twitter instead of TikTok, you're automatically depositioning yourself because people are like, well, Twitter, that's old. That's for old people. The kids don't do it. Yes, there are plenty of young people on Twitter, but it doesn't have the cachet. It doesn't have the vibe that TikTok has right now. And I think there are agencies. I was in a meeting this week where another agency was saying, if you don't speak TikTok, you're dead in the water when it comes to talking to young people. It's like, okay, you're now doing TikTok's job for them. You are now an adjunct sales, you know, salesperson for TikTok. And we do that every single time. We've been doing that since the beginning of the internet. I do think that's a great point. I feel like we as an industry pit them against each other in sometimes ways that the user doesn't. The user sees them as potentially different reasons why they would go on, not necessarily one versus the other. Totally. And we let relative newness Uh proxy for good and effectiveness. I think there's a second consequence to that, Megan, especially when you think about each of these platforms serving a very specific role in someone's life. And in their social interaction is that we should also be messaging for that specific role. And when we think about them as, you know, mutually exclusive or, or oppositional forces, we don't think about the social experience as this larger array of experiences as opposed to just kind of one. And we end up, you know, having the same kind of messaging on Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, et cetera. And, it, you know, gives us a relevance problem for sure. Yeah, that is so true. You know, when I was prepping for this, I was talking to my team and we were all talking about kind of a love for Reddit as a really strong platform that has just stayed absolutely true to their user base. That's such an authentic user experience, understanding why the users are there and making sure that the experience you bring as a brand is right for that environment. We talked a little bit about the ways in which platforms can stay relevant to consumers by continuing to provide them something of value. But brands are part of this conversation too. And brands have the opportunity to provide something of value on these platforms as well. How do we as marketers make sure that we're doing that and not just you know there to, to creep on their data or to uh, show them the same banner ad they've seen a gazillion times? It's really difficult is the answer to that question. <laughs> because the sort of like textbook answer is... It is our job as an agency to represent our clients' best interests, but also help them understand their consumers and what their consumers want from them, what their consumers want from the platforms they engage in the world around them. And I feel like a lot of times we abdicate that responsibility and we just say, hey, look, there's people on TikTok. Let's go throw some ads there, whatever the ad product looks like. Instead of being a little bit patient and saying, first of all, are we getting all of the truth, all of the data, all of the metrics about how people are using these platforms from the platform itself? Because if we are, which usually you are, because you're, you're getting data straight from the platforms about how great they are, you should question that data. Because is there an incentive for the platforms to lie? 100%. And do the platforms lie? Every single time. So the first thing is be patient, right? And validate with outside data, not just the data you get from the platform. The second bit is, Why are consumers going to the platform? What is the too good to be true that people are getting from the platform? And how do you preserve as much of that as you can 
as you imagine and create ad products. I think that's like the the laziest thing we've done as an industry is we've just taken like out of home modes of advertising or TV modes of advertising and then tried to just install them in this very different ecosystem where there's this very different expectation of value exchange online. And so I think we have a responsibility to help the platforms innovate ad experiences that are better, less disruptive, less intrusive, and more valuable ultimately for our clients. Central to that, you you mentioned data. I also mentioned data. Megan, I think you also mentioned data. So mm-hmm. we've said data a number of times here. And I think that's kind of the hidden thing here in terms of, yes, there's monetization of ad space, but there's also monetization of data. How does that fit into this conversation? It's mm, a meaty question. I mean, I feel like it is so core to the advertising experience and why brands are coming to the platforms is because they can, you know, identify the different attributes from a user, be more relevant in their messaging because of that, you know, find someone who's most likely to be interested in their product. So I think the data offering by the platforms is, you know, a real draw to brands and a real value there. And I think, you know, that's kind of the the give or take, if you will, with the user, where the user gets this platform that they love that they get to use in exchange for the ad experience and the data, you know, that kind of goes along with that. So that that's kind of the, the value exchange, if you will. Is there an implicit assumption on the part of the user that the data that they're giving you is going to improve their experience? So is there an obligation we have in selling or buying the data that they create to turn back around and make their experience more nuanced or better as a result for that? Or is that not something that we need to think about as like an equitable exchange? No, I think we should. Yeah. I mean, I think when you, when you read, you know, about how consumers are willing to share data, what drives them to be willing to share, it is that, you know, promise of increased relevance, creating a better experience overall for them that makes them kind of more okay about the sharing. So I think as the brand, you know, we absolutely have an opportunity to take that on and make sure that the messaging and the experiences that we're bringing to users um, are as relevant as possible. And we talk a lot in this industry about data privacy. And I think if you survey people, they'll tell you they care about data privacy. But I don't think people really care that much about data privacy because every single person that I know today went to a website and clicked on a thing that said, I accept cookies. And they have no idea what that meant. They don't know what they agreed to. They don't care, frankly, because they're like, no, but I went to this website so I could see what's going on with the cast of Vanderpump Rules. Or I went to this website, that that might've just been me, but I went to this website to see like what the cool looks for spring are, or I went to see who's going to win an Oscar or, you know, any of that. Like people want what they want when they're online. And that's like, it goes back to the beginning days of the internet. The premise of the internet was everything in the world for free, whenever you want it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And everything we've done since then in the evolution of the internet has been like capping that in these like dumb whack-a-mole ways. And so like, we're just out of necessity for businesses. We're making the internet worse than it was on the first day that you experienced the internet. So I think, you know, the responsibility is if we want to do the best for our clients, then we have to care about what consumers want from their interactions with these platforms. And really, really understanding what that is, is a huge part of the job. This is a short little aside. I don't know if you guys have ever used the Wayback Machine. Yes. It catalogs basically websites over time. So you can go back and look at like, which I did, 
1997 version of my college's website, which was super illuminating because they had no idea what kind of information people would want to see on this website. So just asinine information, like you could not figure out how to apply to the school, but you could figure out like what nuance of some building was available to rent for, for free or whatever. So it was just, it's a pretty illuminating experience in terms of understanding that there was kind of a peak point where we knew what people wanted from the internet and we were giving it to them. And it started to devolve back into this cesspool of not knowing anymore or not caring. So I hear you, Steve. Or even like paywalls, just, you know, ESPN.com is like, if someone was like, go to a website and they put a gun to your head, that's the website I would go to. It's like the first thing that would come to mind and it has been, you know, forever. But there's probably, I would say, two thirds of the content on ESPN.com that I'll never read because I'm not paying for Insider. Sorry to our ESPN clients, but I'm not. Like, you know, there's just, it's like people don't love paywalls. They don't like to pay for content because they know if they look a little bit harder, they'll find 95% of that content for free somewhere else that isn't behind a paywall. And so I think paywalls as a strategy are a noble attempt to sort of keep the platforms a little bit like independent and delivering what the value that consumers want is, but they're very easy to defeat. That gets at a hidden cost of of having all of these platforms serve a very different role in your life. You get that that streaming platform problem where how many subscriptions can you truly hold in your life and you have to start making decisions at some point. And we're probably at that point with all kinds of platforms now when it comes to paywalls where decisions are being made and clients are probably figuring out in, in real time where their value is and where they think their value is. Yes. And to that point, I probably do subscribe to Insider. I just don't know that I do and can't remember my password and don't know how to log in. I subscribed to Spotify twice on two different email addresses for a full two years before I know did you listen to different stuff on both accounts? No, well, there's one I just didn't even realize I had. Both the article, Steve, that you you mentioned at the top and also our conversation has largely focused on three players, users, platforms, and brands. There's kind of this quasi fourth space of a content creator or an influencer that lives on there that is sort of a brand, sort of a user, sort of a platform in and of themselves because they may exist you know, across multiple platforms. So some of them have more power than others. I wanted to know if you guys think that there's a role that they have to play in the life cycle, but also preventing the death of a platform. And I think about Twitch being a really good place that has capitalized on the power of these content creators. But, you know, there's more to say than just what Twitch does. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in many ways, they're the lifeblood of the platform because they're the ones creating the content that's going to keep the consumers in there, keep them engaged, keep them coming back. So I think as a platform, wanting to attract the right creators, making it a good experience, right? Ideally, finding ways for them to monetize the value and the content that they're bringing to the platform is super important because that's part of the reason that consumers are coming is to engage with those creators. I would agree with that. I think, though, that there's a an interesting element that relates to creators on platforms that a lot of people don't think about, which is this. The platforms create the creators because the platforms have the ability by heating or cooling down their algorithms to promote specific creators, the creators that they want. And if in the article that sort of started this whole thing by Corey Doctorow, the, the analogy he uses is when you go to the carnival or you go to the state fair 
and you walk down the midway, you see a guy walking around or a girl walking around with a giant teddy bear that they won at the like ring toss. And the person who controls the ring toss game has the ability to make someone win or lose because they have a button that can like automatically reject the rings going over the whatever thing that a ring goes over. I don't know the word for that thing. So the game is controlled. They can make sure that someone, a couple of people, win a giant teddy bear. And the reason they want a couple of people to win a giant teddy bear is because it will keep people playing the game. And it's a, it's a game that you can't win unless the house wants you to win. It's the exact same dynamic with creators on social platforms. They can tune up their algorithms to make sure that there are some creators who get a giant teddy bear. But most creators don't. There's not a real good, thriving, heavy, like heavy-duty middle class of creators on most of these platforms. YouTube is probably the best. And, and that's because there were a lot of creators who got into YouTube like before it got super algorithmic and they established fandom. It's impossible right now to get the number of followers on YouTube that like some of the creators from 10 years ago got out of the gate unless YouTube decides that they want you to get those followers. So yes, creators are the lifeblood of the platform to a degree, but they're also a creation of the platforms. And I think we need to keep that in mind. I think that part of the article was one of my my favorites in terms of like using the algorithm for good or, or who is the algorithm being used for. I feel like that was really enlightening to be like, oh yeah, if one platform is trying to woo a creator from a different platform, that they will, you know, increase the service against that creator's content to be like, no, look, you know, you do have an audience on our platform, come over, start building content here as well. And then when they get them over, they get them established and they cut off that kind of that algorithm feeding into their content. Super fascinating in terms of just how much control the platforms have on what are we seeing? What are being served? What is that doing to us? What's the reason behind that? You know, you could have the same things to be said for brands. We're trying to get a big partnership going. Is the algorithm kind of serving the brand experience more than it would normally? So all of those dynamics are really complex and really interesting in terms of how the platforms are running their experience. Exactly. And, and when you basically are a content creator and you are used to making videos and using videos to communicate with your audience and then monetize those videos through AdSense or whatever it is to make money, but Google controls the algorithm. And so they might you know prime the algorithm to favor eight-minute long videos. And so you figure that out. You've got a partner at... YouTube, who works with you if you're a big enough creator. And the partner says, eight-minute videos, this is what we're doing. And so you make eight-minute videos, and you get very good at making eight-minute videos, and they succeed because the algorithm will boost them. What if they change the algorithm? And they don't tell you, and now the algorithm wants two-minute videos. But you don't know how to make two-minute videos, or you're not set up to make two-minute You've been making eight-minute videos. And so you're always kind of like chasing success as the algorithm, as the company defines it. It's a very, like, it's a very tough place to be as a creator, I would imagine. I feel like every search trader listening to this is like, sounds so familiar. You know, it's like we've been dealing with this for since the beginning of search. And yes. Things just change and you have to guess what happened and you got to retune your strategy and then go again. Exactly. And then on repeat forever. Right. And it's this incredibly like non-transparent game that's being played where the entity with the most leverage, the Google, the Meta, the Facebook, the TikTok, they've got the most leverage because they've got the platform, they've got the audience and they've got the money. 
They can do whatever they want. They can change the rules of the game and not tell you what the rules of the game are. They can tell you, for instance, like I'm not saying this has happened, but this could happen. They could tell you that video, that their users love video and they watch hours and hours and hours of video every single day. And they could tell you, hey, publisher, who I, by the way, strong-armed to have a presence on my platform and publish full-length articles on my platform as opposed to linking back to your website because I want to keep people in my platform. I could tell them, you've got to start making video because that's what people want. They don't want text anymore. People don't read. They want video. And so an entire industry, an entire industry pivots to video and you were lying and you were lying about your numbers. That could very well happen. I'm not saying it has, but it could. So I think it is our job as supposedly agents on behalf of our clients to really like take a beat and say, where is the data coming from that is telling us how to interact on these platforms? And does that data mean what we think it means? Exactly. How different is that from a a pre-digital world where if we think about radio play, same idea, think about the old studio model, same idea. This is, is kind of a pattern we've always had in media, but perhaps there's just more power to it or it moves faster because we've got these opaque algorithms that can can do it on a dime. Yes, I do not think that this is a problem that only started existing when the internet was born. Even the methodology for something as simple as like Nielsen TV ratings has never made much sense to me. But I don't think the TV networks had as much leverage to fundamentally upend an entirely adjacent industry in the way that the digital industry had that power. And I think, you know, it's the the individual nature of that algorithmic control, which is what makes it to me different and more powerful than maybe legacy media, where it can be, you know, my experience is very different than Steve's in terms of what's being served to me to manipulate my attention. So Steve, you started to talk about this a little bit. What is our responsibility as advertisers in terms of being a check and balance to the power of a platform? but also a necessary collaborator with these platforms? Yeah, I think there's three things generally that I would say fall under our responsibility. The first is to be a kind of dispassionate voice of the consumer when we talk to our clients and we talk to the platforms about what people actually want from these platforms and where not to mess that up, right? So like, don't diminish the features, the benefits that people are coming to these platforms for at the expense of just like, so I can sell ads to that audience. So that's number one, help the platforms grow, innovate and change in a way that really respects what their users want from them. I think the second thing is about data. Uh, If you think about like what our business really is about, it's about helping our clients, the brands we work for, find relevance with consumers. And a lot of times when it comes to these social media platforms, we let the social media platforms tell us what the right measures of relevance are. So they'll tell you it's about ER30, engagement rate over 30 days with different posts. And like they, they sell engagement with, uh, with content as sort of this, like this is the metric that you should have your eyes on. And I think we need to help create our own metrics. So if, if I'm going to tell a brand whether or not they're culturally relevant, it isn't how many social media posts and then how much engagement was on those posts. There has to be more to it than that. There have to be more compound, complicated metrics that really do a simple job of telling a brand whether or not they're resonating with culture and resonating with people or not, and not leave it to the platforms to give us those metrics. 
And then the third piece is just a financial piece. You know, we we have some sway, we have some leverage over our clients' budgets. We can recommend to our clients if they're, you know, trusting, if they trust in our recommendations. And we can say, here's how to deploy your money on Facebook. Here's how to deploy your money with Google. Here's how to deploy your money with TikTok. And making educated, thoughtful, nuanced recommendations as opposed to just gold rush mentality and saying, I don't care what you do. Just throw all the money you can at TikTok. If you don't speak TikTok, you're not going to be relevant with kids. Like it's it's never that simple. So vote with your dollars if you want to affect change. Build consensus with groups of clients. Leverage portfolio effects. Leverage network effects to make sure that you're really doing what's in the best interest of your clients and their consumers, because that's the that's the the dynamic that we should care about as opposed to the health of the platform. I'm not responsible for the health of the platform. Yeah, I really like that last one, especially I was kind of leaning in that space as well as I heard the question, you know, I think it's our our role as a partner to brands to be that advocate for the brands, for the users with the platforms to spend the time, ask the tough questions, understand the true dynamics of what's at play in the ecosystem of any given platform, and to push for what we think is right, not just for the brands, but for the users as well. And as Steve said, you know, if we don't like what we see, if we're not getting the response that we want, then we should move our money because that's really what's going to drive action and change with the platforms. You know, and I think we've seen, you know, success coming together as an industry, particularly in talking to platforms about brand safety, brand suitability, you know, their strength in that coming together and pushing for what is right. I also think there's an aspect as well of, you know, being open to new things. You know, we're all busy. We're all, you know, crazy with the day-to-day. It's easy to be like, okay, this placement on this platform works. We're going to run it again. It's a lot harder to say, oh, you know, this other platform over here is new. It's more up and coming. Let me understand it. Let me try to figure out how to test it. What makes sense for my brand? That takes more work. But I think that work is so important in terms of, one, making sure we're supporting, you know, new platforms as they develop and grow making sure we're unlocking new growth um, for our clients and for our brands, and then just generally minimizing our dependence on any one platform. Absolutely. Here, here. The more power we hand to platforms, the less able we are to do our job, the less able our clients are to innovate, and the less able consumers are to have a satisfying experience. Awesome. On that note, I'm going to shift us over to takes and faves. Everyone's favorite part. Yes, this is my favorite part. <laughs> A plus for enthusiasm. <laughs> so the Oscars are this weekend. Steve, you briefly nodded to it. So what's your Oscars pick for this weekend? And you can pick any category that includes most likely to get slapped on stage, if that's uh, what you choose. Um, and people can fact check you on Monday when this drops. I mean, I looked at the list of um, best picture and I feel like, well, I don't know if it will actually win. I mean, Top Gun Maverick was slightly amazing. So I'm going to go with that one. I'm going to make a really like probably a joke that has been made a million times and will be made a million times more between now and the Oscars, which is that I think that everything everywhere all at once should win everything everywhere all at once. It was the most fun movie I've ever seen or not maybe ever seen, but in a long, long time. And I love my favorite thing about it was that it was like four different movies in one. It was like a Kung Fu movie. It was a fish out of water story. It was a family movie. It was like, you know, a movie about aged differentials and and stuff like that. And I just thought it was like all of the things. And then the visual treatment as it went through, it was just an incredible film. 
What fashion trend are you waiting for Gen Z to resurface? Carpenter jeans. Easy. Carpenter jeans. All right. Well, I mean, that was quick. I've been thinking about it. <laughs> no, seriously. I've been thinking about zip-off cargos for a while. So <laughs> Were those evergreen? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, mean, I really don't yes. know what their purpose was. I don't know. I just, not that I want it to come back. I don't want it to come back as any type of baby tee type shirt. I can't handle it. I'm beyond those years. They're coming. Work for me. They're coming. <laughs> They're already here, Megan. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I can't do it. <laughs> this is a, a bit of a different one, but what was your first job? Mm, that oh. is a good one. My first job was <laughs> I worked at Fuddruckers, which is a hamburger restaurant. And my job there was I made hamburger buns. So they make their buns in-house. And I would get I would get there at four o'clock in the morning and there was me and three women who like they were members of the same family. They were from El Salvador and they had been baking for a long time and I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and they were extremely kind to me and like taught me <laughs> how to make hamburger buns. That was my first job. I read an article about how sensitive Subway is about the smell that they uh, have and how they have specifically cultivated a scent to pump out into the street to manufacture the smell of their bread. If you're not including a scent strategy in your marketing, give me a call because you should be. smell of vision yep. <laughs> uh, my first job was a lifeguard. Standard, good summer job. Did you save anyone's life? I did have to jump in, yeah. I jumped in for sure a lot in the baby pool when some of the parents would just be like chit-chatting and I had to go <laughs> save their kids. And then I did have to jump in a few times into the main pool. All right. So that was a bit more stress than I was looking for. So you are a hero in more ways than one. I mean, if you, if you want to use that word, you know, we can. <laughs> I do know who to, who to ask if like CPR is needed, though. So that's always I, I useful do. in the office. Yeah. This is maybe related. Maybe that is your answer to this next question. But what's your hidden talent? Oh, I can wiggle one eyebrow. Not that anyone cares, but that's what I can do. Demonstration, please. I know this is an audio medium, but I'm going to need to see. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. I don't have any secret talents because if I have even a shred of anything that seems like a talent, I'm like, we'll tell people about it until they get sick of it. But my dumbest talent is that I can do extremely good impressions of people that nobody knows. Like I do a really good impression of my uncle. I do a good impression of like a guy that I used to work for eight years ago. <laughs> so like, if stuff that if I did it right now, people would be like, it just sounds like he's talking like a guy. But they're, like, That's they're nice. dead on impressions. Trust me. <laughs> I, I like that. Having a talent that only you are able to judge the quality of. Yeah. If I've learned anything from Meta and Google, it's like if you grade your own homework, then you're always an A student. Way to bring it back. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been a very illuminating conversation. We I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I promise it was. And shout out to Corey Doctorow for giving us the fodder to uh, jump off this discussion. I think it was absolutely a conversation that we should be having. Yep, absolutely. And I'm sure it's one we'll return to many times during the course of our work and maybe even this podcast. So uh, with that, thanks for joining everyone. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much for checking us out and listening to this episode. You can subscribe and listen to future episodes wherever you listen to all of your podcasts. And make sure to tell a friend so that we can get this into more people's ears. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs>